This is an Emmaus Church podcast. For more information about Emmaus Church, please visit EmmausDenver.com. You guys can have a seat. And when I say guys, I mean mostly ladies. So this morning, um, I'm almost glad there's no visitors, because it seems like we're a bit cultish. Because yeah, all the guys are on the retreat. So as revenge uh, for not getting to go camping, I'm going to try to make this sermon short. I don't know if that's revenge or relief. <laughs> Depending on who you are, I guess. Um, yeah, so in Psalm 38, let me pray and we'll jump in. Father, this morning we are grateful for your presence, um, that where your spirit is, there is freedom, um, that we get to come to you earnestly with our hearts, wherever those hearts may be. And yeah, God, I just pray that as we draw near to you through your word, um, that you would use this moment to change us, to change our hearts. Um, that what your word has revealed about who you are would change who we are. Um, so I pray that you would you would use me, even one that is a broken vessel, um, that you would use me to, to declare your truth to your people. Um, yeah, so I pray, Jesus, that I would um, be out of the way in comparison to, to your words and your truth and what your will is for this this group this morning. So, Jesus, we love you, and we thank you for your words of truth, and it's in your name we pray. Amen. So, this morning, we're in Psalm 38, and Psalm 38 is what we call a penitential psalm, and penitential psalms essentially are psalms that are confessional by nature, um, usually, as as you can hear from the text, uh, very... um, saturated in lament, language of lament and confession and repentance. And of the 150 psalms, um, there are a few labeled as penitential psalms, and those psalms are Psalm 6, 32, 38, which is this one, 51, which I feel like most people know, uh, 102, 130, and 143. And I kind of want to open with this because I want us to recognize the importance of this category in the Psalms. And I think, you know, we could say this about all the Psalms, and, the, and you know, a couple of weeks ago, Levi kind of opened with this, um, the idea that the Psalms kind of demonstrate the full range of human experience, the full range of human emotion and uh, how we interact with God. And whether that's David or one of the other writers, I'm expressing those things. And so the reason that these psalms in particular are important in light of that is that these, like I said, really narrow in on our relationship to God when it comes to confession, our relationship to God when it comes to the recognition of our own sin and how we communicate with him um, in those moments. And so that's kind of what this is all about this morning. As we look at Psalm 38, um, we see David groaning and lamenting over his sin, and not only over his sin, but the consequences of his sin and where he's at, and he's 
communicating how he feels about all this to God. He's having a conversation with God in light of his sin. And we don't really know exactly where David is at in his life when he wrote this psalm. Um, But if you know much about David's life at all, there were plenty of opportunities to lament. (laughs) Uh, Multiple times in his life, he was fleeing from enemies or had done something egregious and was repenting for it. Um, And I think that really speaks to why so many of us connect with the Psalms so well, maybe um, more so than any other parts of Scripture, because we see ourselves in David. We recognize, and the Psalms give us a language for how we communicate with God. And so I'm grateful for that. I'm grateful that David had, and through the Spirit has, has given us that. And today is no different. And that's kind of what Psalm 38 is. But I also was, I was thinking about this and preparing for this. It was kind of in this place of, okay, you know, all that, all that I just said is really great. Um, but also, you know, our series is Christ in the Psalms. So when we're reading the Psalms, we're also reading it through the uh, Christological lens. We're reading it, reading it through the lens of Jesus, and these words also being Jesus's words, because often when David wrote in the Psalms, and a lot of the Old Testament um, is written directly for and, and about Jesus. And so I was thinking about this and preparing for this, and, and just even the concept of the potential Psalms. And before I even opened any commentaries and began study, I was just thinking like. This, it feels awkward sometimes when you go to read a psalm like this and you have that, that language of um, the confession of, you know, it's like, my iniquities are before me. My, I'm sorry for my sin. And you read those words like that. And you're like, okay, but how does this apply to Jesus? Because he was sinless. He has nothing to apologize for. Um, so it's like, how do, I, how do I inject Jesus into a psalm like this? And look at it through his lens. And uh, I was like, I'm going to wrestle with that a little bit. And I opened up like the first, or like, not first, like the third commentary I opened. Uh, it literally started with potential psalms are awkward because of Jesus. <laughs> of Jesus. And I was like, oh, he's like about to answer my question. And essentially, I thought this was, was super helpful for me. And so I wanted to begin with this because I think it sets a good picture as we look at the psalm through the lens of Christ. It talks about the idea that, you know, in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, I'm sorry, I don't have slides this morning. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul writes, for our sake, he, meaning God, made him, Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And I don't know why I didn't think of that verse, but it all of a sudden made the penitential psalms really obvious. That when we read Psalm 38, when we read any of these psalms, we're reading, as Christians, we get to read it under this knowledge, under this truth, that Jesus became our sin, that though sin, Jesus was sinless, though he knew no sin, he became sin. He took on our sin. He took on the punishment, the consequences for our sin on the cross so that we could be close to God. And so when we read these words of David, when we read these words of the psalmist, as they lament and they confess and they repent, and we're looking to see Jesus in these psalms, we see Jesus because 
He became that sin. He took on that sin. And so when we read these words, we, in a sense, as we read what David is lamenting about his consequences and the way that he feels, we can read that and see the burden and the weight that Jesus took on himself on the cross. And I think when you read the Psalms that way, it adds a lot more weight to them. When we read the Psalms, not just as a way for us to have a language to communicate to God, but we read them as the depth of pain that Jesus felt as he took on an undeserved punishment, an undeserved wrath that changes the weight of the Psalms. And I want us to read the Psalm again through that lens. The truth is that, and we in theology we call this propitiation. And it's just a fancy word that means that something was replaced with something else. The truth is that God, like I said, his wrath, all the all the just righteous anger that he had towards sin and towards us because of our sin, that was poured out on Christ. That Christ was substituted for us on the cross. And that all of that wrath, all of that justice was paid in full. Every drop, there's none left. It's the idea, propitiation is the idea that the death of Jesus satisfied God's wrath for our sin. And there's none of it left for us. So when David speaks of what he's experiencing, like I said, we relate to him, and he's speaking prophetically through Jesus. That's, you know, that word, that concept, propitiation, is, is how we can look at, at the Psalms in this way. The weight of our sin laid on Jesus on the cross. And so I kind of want to break this psalm into three parts. And that I think would kind of help us read this psalm in, in a lot of those things. And I think, like I said, the lens that I want us to read is, and maybe this will help kind of narrow it in. Let's read it through the lens, the lens, knowing that God deals with us not in anger, but in love. We can read the psalm knowing that God deals with us not in his anger, but in his love. And so God, we can see from the psalm that God disciplines those that he loves. That just because his wrath is satisfied doesn't mean that he isn't a, a dutiful parent <laughs> to his children. We can see that God understands our weakness. Through Christ, he knows that we're going through as we deal with our sin, as we live in a broken world. And the best of all, we know that God will never forsake us. We just saying that, God, you, your love stands firm in all my life. You are always at my side. We can rest in that truth this morning. So I want to jump in. God disciplines those he loves. So starting in verse 1, and actually he, this is pretty much word for word the same opening as Psalm 6. So in Psalm 6, verse 1, he says, O Lord, rebuke me not in your anger, nor discipline me in your wrath. Psalm 38, 1. O Lord, rebuke me not in your anger, nor discipline me in your wrath. 
It's almost like the same guy wrote it. But, you know, it's essentially, yeah. I mean, it's not essentially. It's literally saying the same thing. David is pleading with God to be gentle with him as he disciplines him. He's saying, God, I, I've, because of the weight that I'm feeling of my sin and the consequences, the way that I'm seeing you right now is a God who is angry, and I'm pleading with you to be less angry, to not be angry with me and my sin. It's kind of, it seems like that's the heart of David here. But he sees his condition. I think it's important. He does see his condition as coming from God, but provoked by his sin. You know, in verse 2 says, For your arrows have sunk into me. Your hand has come down on me. This is the language of, God, I see my, the consequences of my sin as, as from you, that you are the one dealing out judgment here. Hello. And, uh, <laughs> um, but he also, like I said, he recognizes his part in it. He says, you know, because of my sin, my, for my iniquities. And I think it's I think it's worth noting that David isn't asking God not to discipline him. He actually is owning and he understands what he's done is wrong, whatever it is. Like I said, we don't know the exact circumstance. But he is asking God to deal more gently with him. And I want to pause there and, and ask, can you relate with David here? Have you ever been in a place in your life where you feel that something you're experiencing is because God is angry with you? I want you to be honest. Like, Has there been a circumstance or maybe right now in your life where you feel or you believe that the reason you're going through the thing that you are is because God is angry with you and he's punishing you from a place of anger? I remember uh, when I was younger, um, kind of around the time that I got baptized, which I think was 10 years old, I just remember uh, anytime I, I did something wrong and I was conscious and I knew it, that was kind of the first place I went. I was always like, duck, you know, like kind of walked around more cautious, <laughs> like, is God mad at me? Or like when my grandpa passed and he was a preacher, I was like, oh no, Grandpa Mingy's shaking his head. Because, you know, like he had, doesn't have anything better to do in heaven than to judge his grandson. <laughs> it's like one of one of 15 grandsons. Um, yeah, I think at some point in our lives, all of us have kind of have gone that way. We've seen God in that way. And I think it's because we don't understand him. And we don't understand, you know, kind of I talked about earlier, the, the fact that his wrath is not... He's not waiting to be angry with us. That God's, at his core, God is love. Scripture tells us that. God isn't anger. He's love. Anger is a response to something that should not be, which is sin. But at the core, he's love. And so I think when we, you know, and David didn't have the confidence that we have in Christ. You know, David was under the old covenant where you had to make the right sacrifices at the right time 
and uh, over and over and over again to make sure that you were covered. But, and I think sometimes we still live like that. Like we have this feeling that if I don't repay the evil that I've done with good to make up for it, that there's wrath waiting <laughs> on the, around the corner for me from God. And I want to speak against that this morning because it's not true. It's a lie. If you are a believer, that is not the case for you. And I, I hope that this morning as we continue to read this psalm, that becomes more clear and that we would live in, in the truth that that is a lie from the enemy. That Satan wants us to flee from God. He wants us to be... Um, you know, afraid of God, to have fear of God, and not in the way that the scripture would call us to have fear. And I, so I want us to, to speak against that. And I want this psalm and the other penitential psalms to be places that we go that actually don't read as a God angry with a sinner, but as a God who's disciplining someone he loves. Disciplining someone he loves. First John 4 says, talking about God's love, that God is love. He says, in this love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Not that we love God first, but that he loved us. We're talking about a God who is more committed to you than you are to him. So why would you be afraid of him? <laughs> why would you be afraid of, of his, his discipline and his love towards you? I know that's easier said than done. It's an easy thing to say up here. It's a harder thing to, to trust <laughs> and to live in, right? Yeah. If you're struggling with that this morning, the idea that that God disciplines those he loves. Um, Hebrews speaks really well to this. The author of Hebrews says, Consider him, talking about Jesus, who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle with sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? What son is there whom his father does not discipline? And I think about that as a parent. You know, if I let my kids do whatever they wanted all the time, uh, there would naturally be consequences <laughs> for that, right? But probably worse consequences than if I, too, as a parent, were to lovingly step in and set boundaries and set expectations and to set rules that are actually for their good, right? When we, when we disappoint our kid because they don't get to do something they want to do, it's not... Always because we're mean. <laughs> Maybe sometimes we're just having a bad day and we just tell them no because we don't want to deal with them. Like, that's a parenting thing, too. I can admit that. Uh, but I think most oftentimes when you're parenting out of love and dis your discipline comes from love for your child, it's because you want what's good for them. 
as a parent, I know better than my four-year-old. I know that she doesn't like to think that, but it's true. <laughs> you know, I mean, maybe when she's a teenager and we start butting heads more, like, but become more complex. But generally, a toddler does not know better than their adult parent when it comes to their safety and their good. And I think there's a truth in that in the way that God condescends towards us, that as our Heavenly Father, He knows what's good for us more than we do. And oftentimes when we are butting heads against Him or we see Him as angry, it's not because that He is. It's because that we don't accept His discipline for us. We don't accept His goodness, His intentions for us. I think it's a good reminder that for what son is there whom his father does not discipline? That it it wouldn't be loving of God not to discipline us. And I think there's another truth wrapped up in that that's beautiful, that as we are united to Christ because we have union with him, that we are treated like sons and daughters. That that reality that God disciplines us and loves us is because we are united to his son, because we have been adopted into his family. And that's beautiful. And we shouldn't, we should not want to spend any time resenting God for something like that (laughs) because we think we know better. Moving on. So God disciplines those he loves. He also understands our weakness. And David kind of shows us, you know, I kind of try to sum it up like two different weaknesses here because there's kind of a lot going on and a lot of things that are kind of repeatable. But in verses 9 through 10, Psalm 38, he says, O Lord, all my longing is before you. My sign is not hidden from you. My heart throbs. My strength fails me, and the light of my eyes is also gone from me. See, this is kind of like he's putting all his cards on the table And he's coming to God completely vulnerable. He's saying, God, you know, you know where my heart at. You know what my posture is. I'm not holding anything back from you. Like, what you see is what you get right now. (laughs) It's like I'm coming to you earnestly. And he's describing his, his physical weariness over the consequences of his sin, the discipline of the Lord. And he's recognizing that there isn't anything that he can do in himself to restore his strength. So just as much as he sees God as his source of discipline, he also sees God as his source of relief. In verses 11 and 12, he says, My friends and companions stand aloof from my plague. My nearest kin stand far off. Those who seek my life lay their snares. Those who seek my hurt speak of ruin and meditate treachery all day long. And here he's kind of, he's describing like a loneliness. I think it's this realization that his friends are no help to him because his friends, his friends can't give him what he needs. His friends can't give him what, what God can. And, and maybe there's also a sense of actual betrayal. You know, if you look at the, whatever the story actually was, there were times when David literally was betrayed and literally his friends abandoned him. So I think there's also a layer to that. We don't know the specific circumstances. But what we do know is he's expressing loneliness. 
is expressing that his worst enemies are out to get him. And I feel like we've said this a lot in the Psalms. Uh, most of us don't have armies or like assassins coming after us. <laughs> I don't know. Um, maybe some of the people that Cole writes soft, or helps get software for do. Um, you can ask him about that job. Um, yeah, most of us are not in like immediate danger. Or having people plotting our destruction. But I think we can relate to this in some maybe more approachable ways. Like, have you ever felt abandoned by someone after something that you did? You did something, you had made a mistake that you were kind of ashamed of, felt guilt over, and as a reaction to that, someone responded by kind of abandoning you, not wanting to deal with you. Someone you cared about or thought you were close to. Has there ever been a time when you really needed a friend and that was denied you? this. Have you ever felt all the cards are stacked against you in life somehow? No matter what you did, things weren't going your way. Or maybe literally there's someone that's actually somewhat out to get you or make your life miserable. (laughs) That was a friend that felt betrayed by you and was hurting you on purpose or an employer overlooking you. I feel like all of us have an answer to at least one of those things. And I want, I ask those questions to say this, that Jesus is not unfamiliar with those feelings, those experiences. Again, in Hebrews, the author says, we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, we may receive mercy and find grace to help in a time of need. Jesus knew what it was like to be dog-tired after a long day or after a difficult day. Jesus knew what it was like to be emotionally drained. He wept for his friend that died. Jesus was abandoned by his friends as he was beaten beyond human recognition and hung on his cross. Like his mom and one disciple and a couple other people were the only ones there. Everyone else couldn't be found. Totally abandoned him. Jesus knows what you're going through. He has an idea of what you're experiencing. And he's here with you in it. John Stott, in his his book on atonement, The Cross for Christ, he wrote this. He said, I could never myself believe in a God if it weren't for the cross. In a world of pain, how could one worship a God immune to it? 
He entered our world of flesh and blood, tears and death, and suffered for us. This is the God for me. Jesus knows what we're going through. He sympathizes with your weakness. Because in every respect, he took on human form. I think that's a truth worth, worth remembering as we deal with the consequences of our sin and of this world, that Jesus is with us in it. And David kind of ends the psalm on a note of hope, this idea that God will not forsake him. He's pleading for that. He says, but for you, O Lord, do I wait? It is you, O Lord, my God, who will answer. For I said, only let them not rejoice over me, who boast against me when my foot slips. Like I said earlier, he, he's recognizing that God is not just a God disciplining him, but he is ultimately his source of relief from the pain that he's dealing with from the things he's enduring and, and safety, that God is the one who's capable of saving him from these, these circumstances of the people that are after him. And he reiterates his posture towards God even as he's, as he's um, you know, thinking through and processing <laughs> the things that he's feeling about where he's at. He shares with us what his posture ultimately is. In verses 17 and 18, he says, For I'm ready to fall, my pain is before me. He's saying, I'm, I'm spent, but I confess my iniquity, and I'm sorry for my sin. And I think we should pay attention to that, because I think David is teaching us a posture posture that's appropriate for our prayers, posture that's appropriate for us when we come to God with our sin, <laughs> when we come to God with questions about why things are the way they are in our life at any given moment. To, to say, my pain is before me, God, this is where I'm at right now. I'm being honest with you about that, how I feel, things that I'm even maybe doubting or questioning about you and your character but I confess my iniquity. I'm sorry for my sin. I think it's important that David recognizes his discipline for his sin, but he isn't blaming God for the consequences. He's owning up to that the consequences are just, but he's asking for relief. When I was thinking about that, I kind of wrote this down as a reminder for myself. Don't ask God to take away something from your life if you aren't ready to have a posture of humility towards him first. Don't ask God to take away something from your life if you aren't ready to have a posture of humility towards him first.
he even acknowledges that when you chase after a good, when you try to make up for the the things you've done chasing after a good, that there's still evil in the world. There's still going to be consequences. In verse 20, he says, those who render me evil for good accuse me because I follow after good. He's saying, even though I do good, there's still bad things happening to me. There's still people out to get me. He's like, I can't change that on my own. I need God to do something. I need God to intervene. I mean, just that one verse is a lesson, right? It's kind of like David is is coming to terms with God's discipline, but he doesn't want others. He's saying, God, I can deal with you being the source, my discipline and consequences, but like the evil of the world being the ones that get their hands on me, he's like, that I can't deal with. Like, would you please deal with that? I'm okay with you being a loving, disciplining father towards me, but in that discipline and in your love, protect me from the evil that surrounds me. And he ends with this plea, kind of on that note. Verses 21 through 22, he says, Do not forsake me, O Lord. O my God, be not far from me. Make haste to help me, O Lord, my salvation. And if that seems familiar, it's because it is similar to what Jesus cried on the cross to his Father. And it's directly quoted in Psalm 22, but when Jesus is taking on God's wrath for our sin, and he's enduring the punishment of the cross, he says, Father, do not turn your face away from me. He said, Father, do not forsake me. Oh God, oh God. In that moment, the Father's face did turn. In that moment, as Jesus bared the weight of sin, past, present, future of the world, he was forsaken. It's the only prayer Jesus ever prayed that was actually met with silence. Maybe the only prayer in all of history in the world that was met with silence. There should be a way to that. When I read this psalm, I get the sense that David isn't all that confident that God won't turn from him, that won't, he won't forsake him like he did Saul that came before him. Remember, Saul disobeyed God, and God took his presence from him. And the aftermath of that was excruciating for Saul. David knows, because David was the one that, that followed after God, that reaped, in a sense, the benefits of that. And he saw what it did to Saul. He experienced it firsthand. And so his, it's fitting that he would say, God, please, I'm sorry for my sin. I'm confessing it, and I beg you, don't do to me what you did to Saul. Don't take your presence from me. I can't stand that. You are my salvation. What else do I have if you're gone? It's essentially what he's saying. And 
And like I said, we read this as Christ's prayer too. Christ, who has more intimate relationship with the Father than any of us could imagine, is praying that. Because he, more than anyone else, knows the goodness found there. So thank God that he chose to satisfy his anger by providing himself as a sacrifice. Thank God that because of Jesus, because he was forsaken in that moment, we never will be. It's a confidence that David did not have. David trusted God, and he's praying in hope that God won't take his presence from him, and God didn't. We know how David's life ended, that he was a man after God's heart. That is his legacy, which is beautiful, given all the things you know about his story. But we get to have confidence that God will never forsake us. We can read this psalm, and and we can pray this psalm. We can pray, Lord, do not forsake me. I feel like that's what's happening, but I know that you won't. That can be our prayer. God, this is what I feel. This is what I'm experiencing. This is what I'm believing to be true. Help my unbelief. Romans 6. This is a reminder of this the solidity of this truth. Paul says, what shall we say then? Are we to continue to sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that Just as Christ was raised from the dead, by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. There should be a confidence there that if we believe in Christ, if we have faith in him, then our sin, our death, our separation, the trajectory of our separation from God that our sin had us in, is buried. It's sealed. It has no power over us. And we should be walking in newness of life. We should walk with a confidence that we aren't forsaken, that Jesus understands and is with us, and that if there's discipline in our life, it's because God loves us. So what does this all mean? To sum it all back up, I think it means we should have confidence, like I said, to come before God with our sin, to be open and honest, because that debt has been paid. We shouldn't be afraid of his discipline because it's from love and it's for our good. If anything, we should ask for it. We should desire to be molded and shaped more into the image of his son. We shouldn't be embarrassed by our weakness. 
or let loneliness define us because Jesus understands us and he's with us. And he's created a community called the church to come alongside us in these things. And lastly, that God will never forsake you. That nothing that you've done, nothing the evil of this world or our enemy can lay on us that can separate us from that love. Because it's the same love that is between the Father and the Son. A love that existed beyond time. That's the love that the Father has for you, even as he disciplines you. It's because he wants you to become more like his son, who was willing to go to the cross, who knew that the path set before him would lead to that moment, that dreadful moment of forsakenness. It's why he sweat blood as he prayed in the garden. But he did it because he loves us. Let's grasp hold of that this morning and thank God for Jesus. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for these psalms that your words give us words to share with you. I pray that we would be diligent to repent, that we would be eager to confess our sin to you and to those around us because in that there's freedom there's freedom to realize that we are not slaves to it we are no longer slaves to our sin but we belong to you as sons and daughters of a, of a king of a father who loves us more than we could imagine or hope or see and that's, that's hard. It's hard to remember when we're self-deprecating or when we are just, when our faith is weak. Jesus, would you make it strong? Would you open our eyes to see the beauty of a psalm like this as not a a note of your anger, but as a, a letter of your love. Just we love you and we're grateful for you. And we could never say that enough. But it's in your name we can pray. Amen.